about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Good morning. It's so good to be with you all. Uh, it's so good to be get together as God's family, I think, in and of itself. There are some outlines uh, in the booklet on the way through. I'll point you out to some things in that and some reflection stuff that we'll do on the way through as well. So keep that in your hands and keep your Bible open, and I'll try and help you pull the two together. Uh, but as you may know, uh, a little while ago, Cass and I uh, renovated our house. And this isn't our house. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I didn't want to show you it. It looks much worse uh, at this stage. But uh, we made this crazy decision uh, to live in our house as it was being renovated, which seemed like a great idea at the time and a cost-saving measure. Uh, but because of that, we got to learn a whole bunch of life skills that we wouldn't have without it, like how to have a bucket shower in your backyard without anyone seeing from the back lane or what kind of meals you can cook on a sandwich press, or just how many things you can carry in your arms up a ladder as you try and get to your bedroom, uh, and all kinds of things that we learned about kind of living in this construction site. And it's a really interesting experience watching people tear around, like a building down around you and point to things and say, well, that's got to go, and that's got to go, and well, this problem is much worse than we thought. The staircase is pulling down the ceiling, and the, the joists are gone, and so you've got to vacate this room as well. It's a very interesting and stressful time in our lives. Um, but God did something really interesting in this time for me that was unexpected. Uh, I remember this day very clearly. I was uh, sitting down to pray in the morning. Uh, one side of a wall, and on the other side of the wall, Peg, uh, who was our builder, was literally jackhammering the wall. And so there's me praying on one side and him jackhammering on the other. 
And I was there trying to meditate on James uh, 4, where it talks about God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. And I'm complaining to God, thinking, this is so annoying, it's jackhammering while I'm trying to pray. How, how am I going to deal with this renovation? How am I going to deal with my spiritual life as we walk through? And then this really interesting thing happened. As I was praying and meditating, it all of a sudden shot through me that this thought, Maybe that is exactly how God is dealing with my pride. Literally trying to jackhammer it out of me. It was a really interesting moment. Because through the rest of the renovation, I kept walking around our house. And it was like I was living in a scale model of my own soul. As I saw pipes being pulled up and things underneath them be revealed, I realized that that's what God wanted to do with me. Things that I thought looked fine that weren't, things that I thought needed fixing that did, all of them were happening around me, and really, I was just there looking at what was happening as someone did the work inside me. It's kind of changed the way I understand how God works in us. You see, all of us, are construction sites. All of us are already a place where the living God has begun and will continue and will complete a majestic work of renovation. And our job is not to fix the place ourselves, it's not DIY, but to walk around in His presence and behold the things He is trying to do noticing them, and letting him do his work. So this weekend, it would be a great idea if you thought of your life and yourself like a house under renovation. And in fact, I have a little diagram on the way through uh, uh, after the first two sets of it's in the reflection section of a little house for you. Now, I've got a terrace because that was more Newtown than a suburban kind of pool kind of house. It's the side view of it, okay, in case you're confused and spatially unaware like I am. And I'd love you to kind of take hold of this as a metaphor as we walk through this weekend. I think it will help ground what we're trying to do and what God is doing inside you. And as a way of getting going, before I kind of dig into 2 Corinthians, it'd be a really good idea just to spend some time thinking about your house. In this little space you've been given with the pen that Zahn has found for you, it'd be great if you could mark in each room of that house some aspect of your life. Now, there are obvious ones, works, work, friend, family, study, uh, you know, communities like your netball community, your cycling club, uh, your local coffee shop, significant hobbies you have. You know, if you're obsessed with riding bikes, then you should probably make that a room. Uh, you know, works of mercy you do here and overseas, places you do evangelism, things that are especially important to you. What are the big chunks in your life? What I want to give you is just a moment now, before God, as we get going, just to name and label the different parts of your life. If you get a bit further, maybe write who's there with you. And if you get a bit further than that, then maybe put an emoji in each or a word in each about what's happening, okay? Can I give you that for a second? It's just on this page, page eight. There's your house. Label your rooms. Maybe write who's in each room with you. Maybe put an emoji. Let me give you a few minutes to do that. 
Okay, when you're done, uh, why don't you just turn to someone next to you and don't, you know, tell them everything about your house, but maybe point out the salient features to them. <laughs> you know, the decorative artwork, the big screen TV, those sorts of things. Uh, why don't you just turn to someone and just invite them into your house and just give them a tour. What's in your house? Talk to someone next to you. Okay. So it's good you're talking about your house. It would be my recommendation that you maybe keep inviting people into your house this weekend. Uh, Keep showing them some things you're seeing God doing, where you're noticing Him show up, where you're noticing Him speak from His Word, by His Spirit, into your life. That'd be a good thing. Keep your house open. Maybe not everything, but most things. The first question I want to ask in this session from that first bit from 2 Corinthians, we're going to spend all our time in 2 Corinthians, uh, it's just one really simple question. What exactly is God up to in your house? What exactly is God up to in your house? In the midst of all those different rooms and all those different things and all those different people and all those different emotions and all those different tasks, what is the one triune God up to? Now, as we get started, just let me tell you two things. One is you're going to hear a little bit about Soren Kierkegaard this weekend. He's my favorite dead friend, uh, Danish theologian, first half of the 19th century, known as the father of existentialism, although I think that's a bit of a mistake. Uh, And he's my theological companion in research, so I'll quote him a little bit. And also, just to let you know that this verse and the verse before it have become the, the kind of the central two verses that I've obsessed about for a few years. This idea of contemplating the Lord's glory and being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory has become a bit of a spiritual home for me and a way of understanding that question of how God is at work in, our, in the rooms of our lives. So I'm looking to take that verse and the verse before it and kind of unpack them using a lot of verses in 2 Corinthians. But just to let you know, my spiritual home is in verse 17 and verse 18 of chapter 3, just so you understand. But let's get moving and start answering this question, what is it that God is up to? 
And very simply, I think, you get an answer in verse 18. If we can just narrow in on that straight away and ignore the context, we'll come back to the context, narrow in. There is one very simple purpose that God is up to in your life. He is making you like Jesus in every single room of your life. In chapter 18, zoom in on that word, transformed. We are being transformed into his likeness or his image with ever-increasing glory. Now, that word transformation literally is the word metamorphosis, metamorphosis, it's the word where we get the word metamorphosis from, the idea of changing one thing from what it is into something completely different. Jesus in the Gospels had a metamorphosis at the transfiguration. The same Greek word is used, and his outward appearance is changed into a glorious whiteness and light. He is metamorphosized. In Romans 12, we're told that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our inward mind. So in the Bible, this idea of metamorphosis is a total internal and external change of everything that you are. From the grub into the butterfly. But what we're being transformed into in verse 18 is into his likeness, and I think better, his image. God's image, Yahweh's image. Now, when you hear that word image, it should throw you back to the very first chapter of the Bible, where men and women are created in the image of God. We are made to image our maker. That is the unique and special thing it is to be human. Now, at the beginning of the Bible, we hear that phrase, but we don't really understand what that means. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? We're to do his purposes where we relate to each other like God does to us, but it's it's hard to know. It's only later in the scriptures when we begin to hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or as it is put in verse 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It is only when Jesus shows up in the Bible that we really get to understand why we were made in Genesis chapter 1. To be an image bearer of God is to say you are meant to be like Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, in whose flesh is the exact imprint of what it means to be God, the exact imprint of the divine being impressed into human flesh. You see, Jesus is the measure of what it means to be human. You see, you might have been looking at all the rooms of your life, and often what we do when we do that and we look at the rooms, we kind of weigh them up against each other. We can say, well, this room's really important, and that room's not, and God's in this one, he's doing something there, but this one isn't really matter, this one's really mundane, this one's really stressful, that one's really significant. 
But really, if we are to take our purpose as image bearers seriously, it's not that there are different rooms with different things happening. It's that in every single room of our life, we are made to be like Jesus. That is the purpose of your existence. That is the reason why you're here. Now, let's be honest for a second. When I wrote that sentence into my text about Jesus, becoming like Jesus being the purpose of my life, can I be really honest for a second and say that I I found that a really boring idea? Do you know what I mean? Because I picture my life being about great adventures and taking high mountains and doing glorious things. And the idea of just becoming like Jesus, to be honest, seems a bit mundane. Uh, I started reading Soren Kierkegaard, my favorite dead friend, uh, 11 years ago. Coincidentally, it was uh, the year I got married. Uh, And I decided to take one Soren Kierkegaard book in particular on my honeymoon. It was this one, The Sickness Unto Death. Seemed like the perfect thing to be reading on a honeymoon. We're still married 11 years later. Uh, This is Soren Kierkegaard's book, and and in it, he describes how human beings are excellent at avoiding their purpose. In fact, they will do pretty much anything they possibly can to avoid the one thing that that we are put on the earth to do. Rather than making ourselves in the image of Jesus, we make ourselves in the image of the fashion we choose, of the causes we support, of the morality we enact, of the career we've found, of the person that's beside us. Rather than being interested in God's work of making us like Jesus, we are much more interested in making ourselves into something else. And Soren says, basically, this is a common sickness to every human soul. And in one terrifying passage of the sickness, he describes the moment when many souls will arrive at eternity and have to stand next to Jesus and realize that the career they have, the things they built, All that they made their life about is nothing, and then to lose everything. You see, you were made to be like Jesus, but the reality is is that all of us have set up a different transformation project in our own lives. And I think the first thing that God wants to say to us as we come to this weekend, as we start looking into this verse, the first thing the Holy Spirit does when he kind of rocks up to our life, to the rooms of our life, is he looks around at all the things we've been building and he says, you know, this is cute, but how about I bring you back to the purpose you were made for? How about we go into every room And we start to make all of them start to look a little more like Jesus. Because in every part of your life, friend, God is up to that very purpose of making you like his son. 
Now, you might be listening to me and thinking, well, great, I got rid of my WWJD band in 2002. I burned it, or I lost it, or it got stained with coffee, and all you're telling me to do this weekend is to walk into every room of my life with a WWJD band and say, what would Jesus do? Is that all you're giving me this weekend? And the answer is no, not at all. Because the work of transformation is not your work. The work of transformation is the work of the triune God. It is the Father who is at work in you by His Spirit to make you like the image of His Son. Your Father is at work by His Spirit, so you image His Son. Let's get our head into the context now. Because in this part of 2 Corinthians and through the whole of 2 Corinthians, Paul is basically defending his ministry. He's under attack from the Corinthians because he makes bold claims about how God is at work in him, but he looks really pathetic all the time, effectively is the problem. You claim you're glorious, but you look really pathetic. And in chapter 3, the first part of the defense that he takes up is making this extraordinary claim that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in his ministry. And that is something much better, much more glorious than anything that has happened in the history of God's people up until this point. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about how in contrast to the old covenant, his ministry isn't written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but tablets of the human heart. And then in verse 6, he says, God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law of the old covenant, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then when you get to 17 and 18, do you notice how both those verses are bookended with mentions of the Spirit? Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. And then at the end, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, the thing that Paul wants to claim for his ministry and for the ministry of the gospel in the new covenant is that God is directly and powerfully at work in a way he never was under Moses and the law. what we get from verse 17 and 18 is this picture how the one who is really at work transforming us is the Holy Spirit of God. Now, do you notice as he speaks about that, that there are a few different phrases used for the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, and then at the end, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you notice how he keeps moving around the word Lord and Spirit into different positions in the phrases? It's quite a clever thing he's doing. Uh, This is one of those verses in the New Testament where our theology of the Trinity kind of grows up naturally. The word Lord he's using there is the word Yahweh. He's referring to the God of the Old Covenant. The capital L-O-R-D, Lord, you see all through the Old Testament. And he's saying that this spirit is the Lord, and it's of the Lord at the same time. That the Holy Spirit is one with Yahweh, 
and yet he is this independent person who acts imminently in us to bring about our freedom. You see how in the way it's written, uh, this idea of the one God who is different in himself starts to emerge. And it's not only the, the, the Lord's spirit which is on view here, but the Lord's glory, which later in the chapter is described as Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ who is the image of God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we have in verse 17 and 18 this picture of Yahweh who works through his spirit and through his glory to change his people. As the great father Irenaeus said, God works through his two hands, his spirit and his son in the lives of people. The one God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the one who makes us new. See how that kind of just arrives out of this passage beautifully? That's how how Trinitarian theology works in the New Testament. It kind of breathes itself up and out of the text. Now, why is this so important? Well, what we get in verse 17 is that when the Spirit of the Lord is present with us, He frees us. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, is freedom. And you might be asking, well, what type of freedom does this God give? This this, this, this one God who through His Spirit and through His Son is changing me, what's the freedom? Well, let me describe it in a very different way. I started listening again on Spotify to you too. I don't know why. But there you go. And listening to How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, uh, which is a great album from 2004. And it reminded me of a story I knew. Uh, This is the the story of a pastor in Manly. Uh, But he went to Dublin one time uh, and was a big U2 fan. This is the early 2000s when U2 were uh, on the rise again. Uh, And I guess like everyone who likes U2 and goes to Dublin, you go to Bono's house. Most people just drive by, Uh, not my friend Tim. Uh, he went up to the front gate and pressed the buzzer. And I guess some people do that too, right? And then run away. But not my friend Tim. Uh, someone from the other end said, hi. And he said, hi, I'm Tim. I'm from Australia, and I'd like to meet Bono. There's some rustling, someone goes away. They come back, and they say, okay, come on in. And the gate opens, and they walk on in, and they're thinking, oh, great, well, probably something, something will happen at the front, get, front door, and then the front door opens, and they walk through the front door, and they walked into the massive middle bit of the mansion house, and they kept walking through because no one was in there. They walked through and out the back to the private recording studio where Bono is with you two recording an album. And they sit there and listen, them, listen to them record part of uh, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb and then sit down and have tea after. <laughs> you know, it's one of those extraordinary stories of when 
you, you know, you, you think that, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get a little, a little way in. And you end up all the way in. You ask a silly little request like, can I meet someone? And they invite you all the way back in. You see, the freedom that God gives us is that even though we are the creatures who were given this beautiful purpose and spurned it completely, who shut ourselves out from God, in the language of this uh, passage, we are veiled, cut off from God's presence. By the Holy Spirit, do you know what happens? God takes us all the way into the recording studio. God not only opens the door back to relationship with him, he floods us with his spirit and he connects us to Jesus Christ. You see, the freedom that the Holy Spirit gives is with an unveiled face to behold the glory of God. With an unveiled face to experience Jesus Christ. It is the unimaginable freedom of knowing Jesus, of knowing the very person who is the purpose of your very existence, to come into contact with the only one who can allow you to be the the person you are supposed to be. The triune God gives himself back to us by flooding us with his spirit and giving us access to Christ the Son. And it's through that transformative access that everything changes. Because what we see, and this is the third thing, if you're still on the outline, I don't know, I kind of forgot about the outline, I just remembered. We're <laughs> up to point three. Uh, How change then happens is really simple. The more we see of Jesus, the more time we spend in the recording studio, the more time we spend taking hold of the remarkable access to God we've been given, the more we become like Jesus. See how that logic works in the passage? Uh, It says... We with unveiled faces all reflect, contemplate, we'll come back to that word, the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness. So the more you look, the more you become like him with ever-increasing glory, bit by bit, more and more. Now, that word reflect, contemplate is a really strange one. If you're reading the ESV, you have behold, I believe, That's a bit closer to what the Greek says, but I think in this case, the KJV is the winner. I've never said that in a sermon before. But it translates the Greek word here as beholding as in a mirror. Beholding as in a mirror. Now, notice this for a second, because the word that Paul is using is very visual. It's the word for putting your makeup in the morning, contemplating your makeup in the mirror, right? Uh, or contemplating the hairs you're trying to shave off your face. It's a very visual thing that Paul is talking about. 
beholding as in a mirror. Through the Spirit, we behold Jesus as in a mirror, which means kind of, you know, when you're looking at yourself in a mirror, you're not really looking at yourself, you're looking at the reflection of yourself, right? It's indirect. And so through the Spirit, we indirectly get to see Jesus. And it's very important you understand that word, see. Because what's happening in 2 Corinthians 18 is not you knowing more about Jesus, not you understanding facts more clearly, but seeing him more clearly, beholding him in his glory, beholding his fullness. Now, as you go further through the passage, you start to understand this because I get all these questions then. I'm like, well, how do I see Jesus? Like, what does that even mean? How do I behold Jesus as in a mirror? Like, how does, how does the Holy Spirit somehow help me see who Jesus is? But as you move forward in the passage and Paul keeps defending his ministry, he basically moves forward and says, listen, if, if the Holy Spirit is just going crazy in the new covenant, and God is inviting people all the way in through the power of the Spirit to behold Jesus. Here's what we do. We just get out of the way and preach the gospel. He says, we've renounced for two secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone. And then he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And you're like, right, weird. And he says, the God of this age has blinded, right, visual again, blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the what? The light, right, seeing again. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What Paul is saying is, this funny thing happens in the power of the Spirit when we preach the gospel. Somehow when we preach it, it's like the Holy Spirit turns it into light. It's like when we preach it, people don't just hear things, they start seeing things. It is much more than just understanding about Jesus that happens, but people start to encounter him. Paul says that when he preaches the gospel, people see Jesus. This is very strange. Let's, let's dig a bit further. What does he mean? In, in verse 6, we get the furthest with it, I think. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is what happens when the gospel is preached, according to Paul. God the Father, God eternal, as in Genesis 1 when he spoke light into being, speaks light into our hearts, and in that light, we start to see Jesus. This is another little Trinitarian statement. 
It's almost like God, our Father, through the light of His Spirit, helps our hearts see Christ the Son. The Spirit, the freedom He gives us, is to see Jesus in our hearts. To behold the glory of Jesus at the very center of who we are. So you see, have you noticed that when, when you have a dream about your life, that in your head and in your mind, it's never in essay form? You notice how when you're like, oh, one day I'm going to be this, this CEO and I'm going to run this company, it's going to be sustainable, uh, it's going to be like amazing, it's going to be, the building's going to be all glass. You notice how it's not an essay? You notice how it's always an image? Is there anyone who ever dreams of their future through words? Isn't it always through images? Isn't it always a story? Isn't it always that you see like a movie scene in your heart, something happening? Because at the very center of who we are, and this is what Soren Kierkegaard said, is actually what you see at your center defines and determines how you live. And what the Holy Spirit does to change us is he is literally trying to help us binge watch Jesus in our hearts. He is trying to take all of our little, petty, self-transformation dreams and flood them with the glory of Jesus. Son Kierkegaard says in The Sickness Unto Death, the greater the conception of Christ that you have, the more self you have. The bigger vision of who Jesus is resides in your heart, the more you will be like him. The bigger and more glorious your Jesus, the closer you will be to your purpose, to the reason you're here in the first place. You see, the reason why most of us detour and get stuck in our Christian life is that our life gets more complicated, but our Jesus remains small. Our life gets bigger, and our Jesus gets stuck into one room on a shelf. When instead, what we need to grow into our purpose of knowing and loving Jesus is to have an ever-increasing vision of him in our hearts. Now, the reality is, is when you start to see Jesus more, you start to repent of more. You start to realize what you're not. When you start to really see Jesus for who he is and realize that you're supposed to be like him, all of a sudden you start repenting of your lack of gentleness when you see him encountering people, your lack of love and concern and presentness to the people around you, your faulty obedience that pales in comparison to the obedience he has for his father. You see the frailty in your own integrity when you behold his complete consistency. When you start to behold Jesus, you realize how far you are from the person you've been made to be. And yet, at the same time, you behold the one you need. So what do we do with this? Well, if Paul is right, 
then this is the Spirit's work. And the only way you can actually work with what is happening, the only way to access what the triune God is doing is what? It's the word of the gospel. In the word of the gospel is the light of the glory of Christ. So if you want to see more of Jesus according to Paul, you need more of the gospel in your life. Now, this is where 2 Corinthians gets really interesting for me. Because our assumption is that if... uh, that the gospel is something you preach at the beginning of the Christian life, and then you kind of leave behind. You preach it to other people to start their Christian life, uh, but you kind of don't need it once you get started, right? But when you look through 2 Corinthians, and you look at the issues that Paul is addressing, and you can see this in the table on page 7, every time Paul uh, addresses an issue with the Corinthians, do you know what he does? He preaches the gospel. So in chapter 1, when he's talking about their complaint, how Paul planned to go visit the Corinthians, and then he didn't, and they're really cut up about how indecisive Paul is, he's, and they basically say, is your yes even yes anymore, Paul? And he says, of course, my yes is yes. But then what does he say? For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. He says, if you want to know whether my yes is yes, then you need to look again at the gospel. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of God's promises are yes. In chapter 5, when he's talking about what drives his existence, why he preaches, why he preaches, he says, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died. The word of the gospel again, what drives our inner being? The fact that Jesus died for everyone. And that same love has gripped our hearts and is pushing us forward. Or how about when he summons them to live a pure and new life and to be reconciled and to not take the grace of God in vain? What does he say? Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You only live a new life when you realize that Jesus Christ became your sin for you, that you might become his righteousness. Or how about when he summons them to give international aid, and he says, here's the reason why you should give to international aid. Because Jesus Christ was rich, and he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And then in the last chapter, when they're complaining, he's going to their complaint about how weak and pathetic he looks. He says, guess what? Jesus was crucified in weakness and lives by God's power. Can you see how in every situation, he takes the gospel and he throws it in specifically onto the issue? When he's talking about money, he talks about riches and poverty. When he's talking about his pathetic appearance, he talks about weakness and power. When he talks about purity, he uses sin and righteousness. When he talks about the yeses and noes, he talks about the yes of Jesus. Paul depends upon preaching the gospel to change the Corinthians at every issue. And you see, this is is also the way for us to grow our vision of who Jesus is. 
Because the more we see him, the more we will become like him. And so to think back to the rooms in your life for a second, to that picture I got you to draw, the way to think about how God is changing you and how to get on board with that, the question you need to ask is not, how do I do better in each room? How do I be more morally superior? How do I do the WWJD thing? The question instead is, how do I preach the gospel into this room? What about the good news of Jesus belongs here that I'm not seeing, that I'm not hearing? How does this room need a bigger vision of who Jesus is? Because when you start preaching the gospel into each room of your life, the triune God who by his spirit is trying to enlarge your vision of Jesus takes the word of the gospel and starts binging your heart on Jesus. And the more you see of Jesus, the more you become like him. So friends, what I want you to do now in light of this is just take a short moment to really reflect on how this might work for you. And I have a table for you. I have tables in this document. I don't know why. It just seemed like a good idea. And there's two types of people in the room. Some people looking at the table thinking, oh, fantastic, a table. The other people are thinking, oh my goodness, did you really give me a table? Uh, if you're the person who loves tables, fill out the table. If the table doesn't help you, that doesn't matter. That's fine. Don't use the table. I'm not making you. But what I want you to ask as you look around the rooms in your life is, well, what do I need to preach to my life? What do I need to preach into my life about Jesus? What about the gospel needs to be heard? What about God's promises need to happen? Now, in this table... Um, there are, there are some ways of categorizing some rooms on the side. So I'd love you to identify a few things about different rooms in your house. You know, which room is success most important? Which room takes your most energy? Which one makes you the most worried? Which one are you most longing for to see Jesus act? Then you might want to identify an issue. Then you might want to think, well, how, how's the gospel going to preach? And, and to be honest, you're not going to have very long. So maybe just pick one room. <laughs> And start thinking, well, how, how, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ, how, how does that have anything to do with this room in my life? And then maybe short, uh, write a short little prayer about that at the bottom. And maybe you can look back to those examples from 2 Corinthians to help you get started. But just spend some little bit of time talking to God and asking him, where do I need a bigger vision of Jesus? Let me give you a couple minutes to do that.
Okay. There's heaps of stuff you want to do with this. So I'm really sorry. You might, you, you know, to be honest, you might have hooked on to something you want to finish before you go to morning tea. You should do that. You know, go with what's happening. Let me give you one quick example of what I'm talking about, just to bed it down, and then we'll go to morning tea. Are we doing anything else right now, Mike? I think Mike in here even. We're doing something else. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'll bite Mike in a second. But for me, I was thinking about this, and I was, uh, I did this exercise for myself, and I realized that. Uh, with the birth of Lucy in my house, um, what's really pressing in one area of my life is that I have a lot less time to myself, uh, which is fine, um, but tricky. And I realize that the word of the gospel I need into that area of my life is from Philippians 2, where we're called to take on the mind of Christ and not to consider only our own interests, but the interests of others. Because Christ Jesus, who was very God took on our interests as his own, even to death on the cross. And I've been preaching that into that part of my life to settle my heart with being okay with not having as much time for myself. Uh, because that's what my Jesus did for me. He laid aside his interests to take up mine. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.